Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 7th, 2012. I I am going to be taking a huge risk today. Oh man, I cannot believe the theme I've chosen for this episode. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's no shortage of really crazy things being said out there. And unfortunately, these things are being said by pastors, churchmen, author, uh, churches. I mean, in they're saying things they ought not to be saying. They're believing things they ought not to believe because it's not taught in Scripture. It's it it's the whole world's gone crazy. Is just probably the the right way of thinking about it at this point. That being the case, um, I here at Fighting for the Faith. I normally, in fact, I have a habit of doing this. In fact, I can even block it out. If you were to visit me at the Pirate Christian Studios, I could show you uh, ahead of time that, you know, there's several programs I'm already working on for next week, and there's themes that I'm working with them in. Anyway, every edition of Fighting for the Faith has an underlying theme. Now, unless, of course, I state that there is no theme. From time to time, that happens. Um, And when that happens, you know, it's, you know, whatever's been thrown onto the cutting room floor, I usually pick it up and, you know, you think of it like, you know, leftover meat pieces that end up becoming a hot dog. Anyway, (laughs) yeah, those episodes of Fighting, boy, just don't need that visual. Anyway, but those episodes of Fighting for the Faith, I tell you, you know, this, this is just kind of, a grab bag potpourri, who knows what, <clears throat> you know, this, this, there's no theme. I, I will let you know. Um, normally, though, I don't tell you what the theme is. I One of the things I like to do is not tell you the theme so that you can kind of, you know, it, it's basically teaching you theological categories without naming the categories so that you can start to kind of inductively get those into your head. And then intuitively over time, those categories will reinforce because there's different programs that'll do on the same themes and um, and without 
you being able to necessarily say, oh, yeah, Roseboro's working on this particular category, justification or the sufficiency of scripture or, you know, you know things like that. What will happen is, is that you'll start already having, you know, framework put in place so, so that when the, the, the it, when there's a name given for you, you so that's what that's called. That's kind of the way I work. Anyway, I don't normally divulge the um, the theme. Today, I'm going to divulge the theme. And it's, I got to tell you, this is, I have never, at least not that I'm aware of, because, you know, keep in mind that, you know, I'm getting old, creeping decrepitude has crept upon me. And as a result of it, you know, memory fails, you know, <laughs> more and more of my, of my brain needs to be offloaded onto computer devices and things like that to help me not forget things because I'll forget things. But anyway, so but to the best of my memory, I have not done a program on this theme, and it's not necessarily a theological category, but an important um, aspect of of being a teacher, preacher, and proclaimer of of the biblical gospel, and that is this: is that there's no way, especially today, and it just just there's never been a way, but especially today, there is no way. For you to rightly preach Christ and Him crucified, proclaim law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, without offending somebody. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that we set out on purpose to offend people. Trust me, you, you as a Christian, you, 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 there's no point in even making such an effort. You preach Christ, you preach the biblical gospel, you preach law and gospel in such a way that you are slaughtering people's sacred cows, their, their long-held idolatrous religious beliefs. Oh, you are going to hear from them. You are going to offend them. Now, so the idea is, is that you're not purposely setting out to offend, but if you <clears throat> proclaim the truth, you are going to offend. You're going to step on toes. So here's the idea. Today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is the theme is uh, offense. You know, you're being offended. That's, that's the theme. Now, what we're going to do for today's program is I've picked a series of different things, okay? All of them are provocative on, on one level or another, okay? And here's the here's kind of the thought experiment, okay? Here's the thought experiment that I want you to work through. You're going to hear things today on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith that on one level or another. Some some things more in your face, other things a little less bold or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of just generic statements that yeah, you could say those are offensive, but the idea here is, is that one way or another, you're going to hear segments from today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Each segment, each piece has something in it that is provocative and for some could be offensive, okay? Now, I'm not trying to purposely offend you, but keep in mind that there is a good chance you will hear something on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith that may offend you. That being the case... You know, you've been warned, all right? So, but here's the idea. <clears throat> As you're hearing the different segments of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, ask yourself this question. Is the offense that I'm hearing the offense of the cross? Is the offense that I'm hearing the offense that I feel when my sin is exposed, when my false ideas are rebuked by the word of God, or am I just hearing something offensive? 
Okay, that's the idea. Okay, and so I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I've picked something from the world of politics. Uh, I've we got commentary by uh, William Tapley, uh, which he says some things that are pretty offensive. I've got a Patricia King segment that will that I'll then throw in the biblical teaching to explain to you the offense of the biblical teaching uh, that she completely missed and how offensive it is that she did what she did with that text. And then I'm going to read a, an article, uh, a blog post by uh, Dr. Michael Horton on um, on Christianity in seven words. Christianity in seven words, and he's going to say some things that are very offensive. Okay, so you know, and but again, the question is: Is the offense that you're hearing the offense that comes with rightly proclaiming law and gospel, sin and grace, and repentance and the forgiveness of of sins, or is it the offense that comes with just really making provocative statements? Okay, and then in hour number two, we're going to listen to two good sermons. And both of them are offensive in different ways. Okay, sermon number one is coming to us uh, from uh, Nebraska, uh, Pastor Brent Kuhlman. And those of you who think that you are holy or holier or more sanctified because you don't drink particular things, whether that's coffee, tea, uh, sugary beverages or alcohol or whatever – um, this sermon is going to get in your face and step on your toes and smash your little pietistic idols, okay? Sermon number two by uh, Pastor uh, Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Those of you who falsely believe that baptism is you basically going public with your decision to be a Christ follower, this sermon is going to absolutely b- make you beat red with anger as he proclaims what the Bible teaches regarding baptism. And so, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, this is the most dangerous episode of Fighting for the Faith that I've ever done. But again, what you're going to hear is you're going to hear all kinds of statements that on one level or another, to one group of people or another group of people, it's going to be offensive. And see, here's the problem. We live in a time... When people think that they have a fundamental right to not be offended. Political correctness is all about regulating people's speech, not through laws and, and legislation. Okay, For instance, here in the United States, I have freedom of speech. But my speech, people are attempting to curb... And regulate my speech, not via laws, but via pressure from the community, pressure from different groups saying you can't say something like that because it offends people. It offends. Well, let me read to you some biblical passages, okay? The Gospel of Matthew chapter 11 Starting at verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John the Baptist heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word to his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf 
hear. The dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Believe me when I tell you this. There are people who are, to this day, offended by Jesus. They don't like the biblical Jesus. They don't like the historical Jesus. They don't like, they are offended by Jesus. This one who forgives sins, exonerates, well, pardons, flat out pardons prostitutes and tax collectors and hangs out with the riffraff and worse than that, heals on the Sabbath and things like that, right? This, they're offended by him. And so what do they do with the Jesus whom they are offended by? They get rid of him. They get rid of him. They shut him up. And the way they do that is rather clever. The way they do that is by, well, taking over churches and then not preaching him. The, the Jesus they preach is the Jesus of their own imagination, the Jesus of their liking, the Jesus whom they've invented. And so what happens is they carefully, maliciously, and deceitfully engage in cutting and pasting, snipping little things out here, getting rid of that, hitting the delete key, and making corrections, additions, um, improvements upon the biblical Jesus and, you know, and they're always careful then to pietistically always speak about Jesus, but never preach the Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 20. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of, of uh, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we we preach Christ crucified which is a stumbling block to Jews and utter foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or worldly wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see, Scripture is really clear that you preach Christ and him crucified. Well, that's folly. That's foolishness. That's offensive. You preach that God created the world in six days. Well, that's offensive. That's foolishness. That's Tom. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. I'm offended. I'm smarter than that. You say that the only way for me to be saved is to repent and be forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ? You have got to be kidding. Really? Are you so naive to believe that somebody can rise from the dead? That's ridiculous. That's foolishness. I'm offended. You see, here's the deal. We live in a world that no, really no matter what you say, no matter how hard you try, you're going to offend somebody. That being the case, the question is this. When it comes time for there to be an offense, will the offense that you give be the offense of the gospel, be the offense of the truth of God's word, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Will it be that, or will it just be words that are offensive because your opinion is not in vogue or out of st- it's out of step with the community? See, these are the questions that we're going to take a look at today. And so, like I said, we're going to do several segments And each one is designed to, well, have something offensive in it. Have something that I'm going to highlight as being offensive. Some of the things are going to be offensive just because they're offensive. Some of the things are going to have the offense of the cross, have the offense of God's word behind it. And so the question is, as you listen to today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, again, keeping in mind I'm taking a huge risk, you will hear things that will offend you. But ask yourself this question. Is the thing that you're offended at the fact that your sins have been exposed? That you, your false ideas, have been destroyed? And the truth has been proclaimed despite the fact that you hate that truth? Or or were you offended because something said some, somebody said something that was just, well, at the end of the day, offensive? You see... No matter how you try, you're going to offend somebody. But again, I ask the question, when the time comes, will the offense be the cross, sound doctrine, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and the biblical, historical, real Jesus? Or will the offense be you? That's really the question. And to begin today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, we'll start off easy, simple, the well, the least offensive of the offensive things that we'll be covering here at Fighting for the Faith. First up, Patricia King. Have you been spending time in the secret place so that you can then take it out to the marketplace? Well, if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's Patricia King to explain. For many of you at the end of the
I'm going to pray for many of you at the end of this clip because God is calling people to the marketplace right now like never before. In fact, we're even seeing signs of revolution in the marketplace. You know, sometimes, you know, when... You know, a preacher stands up behind a pulpit. He can preach a good message to the congregation. But who will listen to him outside of that congregation? And where will people uh, listen from? Will people in universities listen to to a preacher behind a pulpit? Will uh, government leaders listen to someone behind a pulpit? Maybe not. But if that person is in a strategic position in the marketplace, maybe we can get the attention of those that need to hear Recently, um, there's been almost like a revolution on a moral issue where um, a business, actually a chicken restaurant, a Christian chicken restaurant, took a stand on a moral issue. And when they took the stand, it started a domino's effect. It was amazing the way that people would stand up by the hour to support that business because of the stand they took. And it was all done in the marketplace. And then media took hold of it. It was all over the media. And then another fast food chain said, well, we are in agreement with you. We're cheering you on. And then they started getting people following them. Then another one and another one. And it started this domino effect so that this huge mass of message went out. But it was through marketplace ministry. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus, who always spent time in the secret place. He said he only did the... He did what? (laughs) He what? (laughs) Things that he saw his father do. So we know that he was in the secret place first and then in the marketplace. You have to be in the secret place to know the mind of God. And so he came out of the secret place. He was in um, a uh, place right in the center of town because in that day, they used to hang out around the wells. And there was a woman. She was a Samaritan woman. She wasn't even a Jew. And he began to minister to her in the marketplace, telling her prophetic insights and words of knowledge and ministering truth into her heart right there in the marketplace. What did she do with that? It started a domino effect because she went and took it out from that place and went and told all the men about everything he had told her. Then they came out to where he was. He wasn't in a synagogue. He wasn't in the temple. He was in the marketplace. He came from the secret place to the marketplace. And she had all the men coming out. And then when he preached to them in the marketplace, when he shared truth with them in the marketplace, they said, is this not the Christ? Is, is, is this not him? They saw it for themselves, not because the women told them, told them, but because they got the revelation for themselves. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to pause right there. I, I have no idea what she's babbling about, but she's babbling for sure. Let me read to you the Gospel of John, chapter 4. I'll start at verse 3, and let's take a look at Jesus' offensive actions here. Keep in mind, the Samaritans... They were, well, religious idolaters, okay? They were syncretists. They were people who had syncret, you know, they had some elements of Judaism and some elements of their own idolatrous ideas all mixed up in, into their own cobbled together Samaritan religion, okay? And the idea that guys would talk to women at wells, by the way, this is at a well, not in the marketplace, this is unheard of. That Jesus decided to go through Samaria, absolutely offensive and unheard of, okay? That Jesus then would, well, let's take a look at the offensiveness of this entire story. Check this out, okay? 
Jesus, um, John chapter 4, verse 3, uh, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jews did not do this, by the way. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the uh, field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Jesus is the God-man, and he's weary from his journey. Yeah, see, if you're offended by Jesus' um, human nature, um, well, I, not much I can help you here. It clearly says that Jesus was weary from his journey. So he was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, I want to point something out here. Um, this is not the marketplace. Patricia King, she's a complete quack. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Okay, That she would sit there and say, well, it's clear that Jesus was in the secret place and then took it to the marketplace. She's a taco short of a combo plate. What she's saying isn't true. Um, But let me read to you what the passage does say. So a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. By the way, that little statement there in John chapter 4, verse 8, that the disciples had gone into the city to buy food, proves that Patricia King is completely botching this text. She says that Jesus was in the marketplace. No, he wasn't. He was not in the marketplace. He was still outside of the city. His disciples went into the marketplace. What she's saying is absolutely, well, nutty. Anyway, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? This is just highly offensive here. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Okay? How could Jesus do such a thing? So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his his, uh, livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will well up in him and become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Mm -hmm. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, Well, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, now point this out here. Jesus travels through Samaria, not supposed to do that. Talks to a woman, not supposed to do that. Not only does she, a woman, this woman is clearly, clearly a sinner, an unrepentant one at that, and she is, well, she's one of those women. She's had five husbands. The correct phrase, by the way, to describe her, the label that we would put on her, is adulteress. She is an adulteress. And boy, is this true. So why on earth is Jesus speaking to her, right? You're right. You know, for you have had five husbands. The one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We, the Jews, worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Notice, he flat out said that her religion was wrong. Salvation is of the Jews. You worship what you don't know. Right to her face. He took her her idols, took her false religion, and in a sentence, smashed it. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship me. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and And in truth, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Right? So the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I have ever done. Can this be the Messiah? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Okay, now I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. He stayed in Samaria for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you say that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is indeed the Savior of the world. So there's this really offensive story here. It has nothing to do with being in the secret place or the marketplace. But then again, Patricia King is not exactly known for her biblical fidelity, is she? Let's see what she does with this now. Where? Again, not in an institutional building, not in a pulpit, in a, in a synagogue or a temple. It was in the marketplace. Many of you are going to have a loud voice in the marketplace. God is going to give you a place of, of influence, a strategic place in the marketplace so that you can be a voice for him. I prophesy greatness over you for the... You do what? Glory of the name of Jesus. I prophesy favor over you in the name of Jesus Christ. Well, Patricia, um, why on earth should we believe that you have the authority or power to prophesy anything when you can't even rightly handle God's word. I thank you, Lord, for each and every person that is called to the marketplace, that you're going to give them all kinds of of revelatory, uh, inventional ideas and concepts and favor that will bring them to the place that you want them to be. In Jesus' name, I bless you. You know, I have a... Yeah, no. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that's kind of sample number one. And... Um, it's obvious that Patricia King hasn't got a biblical clue uh, that she is capable of you know, standing on. Um, she's not capable of rubbing two verses together and actually coming up with a correct exegesis from a biblical passage. And yet the, one, the passage she was pointing to is just chock full of, well, flat-out offensive stuff. Jesus hanging out with Samaritans, Samaritan adulterous women? 
Wow, that's really offensive. Okay, so the question I have for you is, where was the offense of Christ in that segment? Was the things that Patricia King said chock full of the offense of Christ and the truth? Mm, Probably not. Let's try something else. Let's move along to our next segment. We've got uh, some, I got a news story that I want to cover. From the Christian Post, the uh, headline reads, Cardinal Dolan prays for respect of God's institution, the unborn at the Democratic Convention. Cardinal Timothy Dolan, the Archbishop of New York, delivered the closing prayer at the Democratic National Convention Thursday night in Charlotte, North Carolina, asking Americans to respect God's institutions, the dignity of life, and the basic liberties afforded to us all. Grant us the courage to defend it, life without which no other rights are secured, Dolan prayed at the convention. We ask for your benediction on those who are waiting to be born, that they may be welcomed and protected. The Catholic Church has a number of issues with President Barack Obama's administration this past year. Official Catholic teachings affirm the traditional definition of marriage as between one man and one woman, but Obama declared his support for same-sex marriage back in May. Another very hot topic has been the Health and Human Services contraceptive mandate that requires all employees, including religious institutions, to provide their employees with a health plan that includes contraception, which is also against Catholic teaching. Many people who identify as Catholics, however, do not side with the church's teaching on birth control. A 2012 Gallup poll showed that as many as 82% of Catholic respondents in America said they believe that birth control is morally acceptable. Still, Catholics and evangelicals alike have argued that their religious freedom is being violated by the HHS mandate. Dolan has remained open to engaging in further discussion with President Obama over the issue and blessed the president, including all looking to serve America through through office in his benediction at the Democratic Convention. So that's um, Cardinal Dolan. That's the coverage of it. Let's listen to a little bit of his um, prayer so we can kind of get a feel for what it is that he actually um, prayed. With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, let us close this convention by praying for this land that we so cherish and love. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, revealed to us so powerfully in your Son, Jesus Christ, we thank you for showering your blessings upon this, our beloved nation. Bless all here present and all across this great land who work hard for the day when a greater portion of your justice and a more ample measure of your care for the poor and suffering may prevail in these United States. Help us to see that a society's greatness is found above all in the respect it shows for the weakest and neediest among us. We beseech you, Almighty God, to shed your grace on this noble experiment in ardored liberty, which began with the confident assertion of inalienable rights bestowed upon us by you, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thus do we praise you for the gift of life. Grant us the courage to defend it, life without which no other rights are secure. We ask your benediction on those waiting to be born, that they may be welcomed and protected. Strengthen our sick and our elders. 
waiting to see your holy face at life's end, that they may be accompanied by true compassion and cherished with the dignity due those who are infirm and fragile. We praise and thank you for the gift of liberty. May this land of the free never lack those brave enough to defend our basic freedoms. Renew in all our people a profound respect for religious liberty, the first, most cherished freedom bequeathed upon us at our founding. May our liberty be in harmony with truth, freedom ordered in goodness and justice. Help us live our freedom in faith, hope, and love. Make us ever grateful for those who for over two centuries have given their lives in freedom's defense. We commend their noble souls to your eternal care, as even now we beg the protection of your mighty arm upon our men and women in uniform. We praise and thank you for granting us the life and the liberty by which we can pursue happiness. Show us anew that happiness is found only in respecting the laws of nature and of nature's God. Empower us with your grace so that we might resist the temptation to replace the moral law with idols of our own making or to remake those institutions you've given us for the nurturing of life and community. May we welcome those who yearn to breathe free and to pursue happiness in this land of freedom, adding their gifts to those whose families have lived here for centuries. We praise and thank you for the American genius of government, of the people, by the people, and for the people. O oh God of wisdom, justice, and might, we ask your guidance for those who govern us. President Barack Obama, Vice President Joseph Biden, Congress, the Supreme Court, and all those, including Governor Mitt Romney and Congressman Paul Ryan, who seek to serve the common good by seeking public office. Make them all worthy to serve you by serving our country and help them remember that the only just government is the government that serves its citizens rather than itself. With your grace, may all Americans choose wisely as we consider the future course of public policy. And finally, Lord, we beseech your benediction on all of us who depart from here this evening and on all those in every land who yearn to conduct their lives in freedom and justice. We beg you to remember, as we pledge to remember, those who are not free, those who suffer for freedom's cause, those who are poor, out of work, needy, sick, or alone, those who are persecuted for their religious convictions, those still ravaged by war. And most of all, God Almighty, we thank you for the great gift of our beloved country, for we are indeed one nation under God, and in God we trust. So, dear God, bless America, you who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right. So that was uh, Cardinal Dolan's prayer. And boy, that that prayer um, really um, seemed to me to be way out of step with um, the uh, Democratic Party and its platform, especially given the fact that... um, Remember the platform amendments that were put forward where they, the Democratic Party had to vote on two amendments to their platform? Let me remind you of what those were. Amendment number one was they wanted to add back the word God. We, and it was from page 32, line 48 of the, the Democratic National 
platform, a committee platform. It, and here's what it's, the, the amendment was supposed to say. We need a government that stands up for the hopes, values, and interests of working people and gives everyone willing to work hard uh, the chance to make the most of their God-given potentials. God, just add the word God in there. And then the second amendment that that, that was proposed was to page 63, line 26, that Jerusalem is and will remain the capital of Israel. Uh, the parties have agreed that Jerusalem is a matter for uh, final status negotiations. It should remain an undivided city accessible to people of all faiths. Well, let's take a listen and see. I mean, was the God-given potential portion in this idea of, you know, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, was that all, um, you know, just, oh, yeah, we, the Democratic Party, we are all in favor of that? Well, let me play for you again the vote, the audio from the vote from the DNC. The chair recognizes the delegate from Ohio. This is Antonio Villarogosa. The chair of the platform drafting committee, former governor Ted Strickland. None. Mr. Chairman, I move that we suspend the rules to permit an amendment to the platform adopted by this convention last night. Governor Strickland has made a motion on the floor to suspend the rules. Is there a second? A motion to suspend the rules to permit the amendment to the platform has been moved and seconded. This is a non-debatable motion requiring a two-thirds vote. All of those in favor of suspending the rules, say aye. All those opposed, say no. In the opinion of the chair, there's been a two-thirds affirmative vote to suspend the rules. Governor, would you like to make your motion? Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this summer, I was proud to serve this party as the platform drafting committee chair. As the chair, I come before you today to discuss two important matters related to our party's national platform. As an ordained United Methodist minister, I am here to attest and affirm that our faith and belief in God is central to the American story and informs the values we've expressed in our party's platform. In addition, President Obama recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and our party's platform should as well. Mr. Chairman, I have submitted. So we we got we got to put God back into our platform, despite the fact that the Democratic National Com Convention um, was all about affirming gay rights, abortion, and things like that. Oh, and yes, we're going to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Do you think the people at the DNC were just thrilled by these concepts? Hardly. My amendment in writing, and I believe it is being projected on the screen for the delegates to see. I move adoption of the amendment as submitted and shown to the delegates. A motion has been made. Is there a second? Is there any further discussion? Hearing none, the matter requires a two-thirds vote in the affirmative. All those delegates in favor say aye. All those delegates opposed say no. It sounds like it's tied to me. In the opinion of the... Let me do that again. Uh-huh. Yeah. This isn't going the way they had expected. All of those delegates in favor say aye. aye. All those delegates opposed say no. no. And the no's sound just as um, loud as the eyes. Huh. 
And there's Antonio Villarragosa basically going, oh, no, this isn't good. We've got to vote God back onto our platform. You, you know what the Republicans are going to do with us if we don't vote God back? I, um, I guess... I'll do that one more time. All those delegates in favor say aye. All those delegates opposed say no. In the opinion of the chair, two-thirds have voted in the affirmative. (laughs) Yeah. Do you need a hearing aid? The motion is adopted. And the platform has been amended, as shown on the screen. Yeah. All right. So this is the convention that Cardinal Dolan ended, you know, with his prayer. And understand, Cardinal Dolan is not without his critics. And so the question is, the question is, what's the offense? What's the offense of that prayer? If you were offended by it, why? Was it because he said things that were offensive or because he was proclaiming the truth. Now, he's a Roman Catholic, so we've got a problem here. He doesn't believe in the biblical gospel. And uh, there's all kinds of false doctrine going on there. So to the uninitiated, that would sound like a perfectly Christian prayer. But, they, but then again, we've got people who were offended by him even being where he was, the question is, what's the offense? I mean, that was clearly offensive. And when you check out the news stories today, there are, you know, all kinds of uh, stories in the mainstream media that are basically taking shots at Cardinal Dolan because it's things that he said in his prayer were out of step with the Democratic uh, Party's platform regarding abortion and same-sex marriage. So why was he there? I mean, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But to give us some commentary, here's an offensive um, commentary. Um, well, we got to do this before we do that. That's right. If, uh, offensive commentary on Cardinal Dolan's appearance at the Democratic National Convention will be given today by um, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and Co-Prophet of the End Times. Hang on to your hats, folks. This commentary by William Tackley could blow the hair off a dog. I'm just saying. So, like, like I said, uh, here's William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse, co-prophet of the End Times, giving his commentary um, regarding Cardinal Dolan's appearance at the DNC. And, by the way, this was put up on the Internet prior to Cardinal Dolan's appearance. And so, um, like I said, hang on to your hats. You might need uh, some kind of protective gear for this one. 
And what he's going to say is going to be offensive. That's kind of the whole theme of the program today is offensiveness. Patricia King, um, you know, wrongly handling God's word, offensive. Uh, claiming that she can be prophetically, uh, can prophetically you know, bestow blessing, well, that's offensive. Um, and then, you know, the text I read about Jesus in Samaria, offensive. Uh, Cardinal Dolan's appearance at the uh, DNC, truly offensive. Um, here's, um, uh, you know, like I said, William Tapley to give his offensive commentary on Cardinal Dolan's appearance. Here we go. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley also known as the third eagle of the apocalypse and the co-prophet of the end times. Would you believe that the closing benediction at this week's Democratic National Convention will be given by Cardinal Timothy Dolan of the Archdiocese of New York City? This is unbelievable. Cardinal Dolan is supposed to be spearheading the effort to prevent Obamacare from forcing all Catholics and all Christians to pay for other people's contraceptives, sterilizations, and even abortifacient drugs. What is Cardinal Dolan thinking of? Very well did Jesus say that the children of the light are not as wise as the children of the dark. I mean, what kind of message is this sending to Catholics? The official position of the Democratic Party is to support legalized abortion. They officially support gay marriage. They even support forcing all Christians to pay for other people's immoral sexual activities. Well, I suppose what Cardinal Dolan will say is even Jesus ate with sinners. I mean, he ate with tax collectors and with prostitutes. And certainly that does fit the Democrat Party. They are the tax collectors, although I think maybe male prostitutes would be better than prostitutes. But I'm here to inform you today, Cardinal Dolan, that it is a big error on your part. If you think you are going to convert Barack Obama, you have no idea who you are up against. Recently, you concluded a Fortnite for Freedom program and you specified various prayers and fastings that Catholics could use to defeat Obama's plan to take religious freedom away from Christians. However, you did not specify the only prayer that could succeed, and that is Mary's Rosary. Your problem, Cardinal Dolan, is that you haven't a clue as to who Barack Obama really is. Yeah, and uh, if you think that Mary's Rosary is the solution to whatever Obama is, oh boy. He is no ordinary American president. He is found in Bible prophecy. He is the leopard in Daniel chapter number 7. Okay, <laughs> all right, you, you, we've heard the whole spiel. Okay, so there, there's... um. William Tapley's a part of it, half of his uh, offensive commentary um, on the offense of Cardinal Dolan's prayer at the uh, Democratic National Convention that just concluded last night. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a break. And again, let me ask a question before we take the break. Um, was the offense that William Tapley gave the offense of Christ 
in him crucified for our sins, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, or was his offense something else? Um, was Cardinal Dolan's offense, if you were offended by his appearance at the DNC, what was his offense exactly? Um, and was it the offense that we Christians are called to, well, not be ashamed of, you know, to preach and teach um, regardless of its offense? You see what I'm saying? Uh, Patricia King, what was her offense? Jesus, when he uh, appeared in Samaria, what was his offense? Yeah, again, I, I just I, I want to kind of throw this all here. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to throw as many offensive things into the mix today in order to, to get you to think about the concept of being offensive. Not for the sake of being offensive. Sometimes you just can't help that. But it, when the time comes for you to uh, give offense, what will the offense B. That's the important question. All right. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding any uh, anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be back with our offensive episode of Fighting for the Faith right after the, um, this break. Uh, stay tuned. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build-A-God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your God, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then... Well, what is your God's take on sin? He 
fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. Yes! He's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, um, Fighting for the Faith is an offensive radio program. The question is, what's the offense, and why are you offended if you're offended? Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on 
on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Now, moving along with today's offensive episode, I've uh, picked a, an offensive blog post by uh, Michael Horton entitled The Gospel in Seven Words. And so here's the question. Okay, what you're going to hear to some is going to be offensive. Okay, and one of the reasons why it's going to be offensive is there's going to be some phrases that Michael Horton is going to correct, that he's going to disagree with, that he's going to rebuke and say are false. And these are phrases which may be floating around in your church. And, well, if, you, if you've heard these statements that Michael Horton is going to critique – being critiqued and they're being said in your church, you may be offended by what you're going to say. But the question is, what is the offense? What is the offense? Okay. So is it Christ, sound doctrine, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Is the offense the truth? Or is the offense that Michael Horton is being a gunky head and being very offensive? That's the, that's the question. I mean, so let's let's see if we can figure this out. By the way, you can find this at the uh, White Horse Inn website, whitehorseinn.org. Click on the blog. Go to September 5th, 2012. The name of the blog post in question is The Gospel in Seven Words. <clears throat> Michael Horton writes, it says, D.L. Moody once said, I can write the gospel on a dime. Many of us were raised with the primary question of personal evangelism. If you had less than a minute in the elevator with someone, how would you share the gospel? How would you summarize the gospel, the very heart of the Christian message, in seven words? Well, a recent story, the August twenty third uh, from August twenty third, twenty twelve, of the Christian Century. This is the magazine of mainline Protestantism, say liberalism. That's both modernistic and postmodernistic, by the way. Um, put that question uh, to several leading pastors and theologians. The writer David Heim begins in his autobiography, "Brother to a Dragonfly." Will Campbell recalls how his friend P.D. East had badgered him for a succinct definition of Christianity. East did not want a long and fancy explanation. I'm too bright, he told Campbell. Keep it simple. In ten words or less, That's the Christ what's the Christian message? Campbell obliged his friend and said, We're all bastards, but God loves us anyway, he said. To which East replied, If you want to try again, you you haven't two words left. And uh, Campbell and East eventually had an extended conversation provoked by Campbell's summary. It had stuck in East's mind. He wasn't sure he bought it, but it gave him something to think about. That's how that article begins. So Horton then says, So now the results of the Christian Century survey of answers, the seven words they'd, they'd use to summarize the gospel. I'll leave the names out. You can find them at the link above. So if you want to, you got to go to the Christian Century if you want to find out who said what. But, get, uh, but I'm going to give my thoughts concerning their submissions. Most of the statements uh, cluster around the more therapeutic understanding I've described above. So here's the first statement. Uh, summarize Christianity in seven words or less. Here it is. God, through Jesus Christ, welcomes you anyhow. Now, if you attend a seeker-driven church, you may have heard something like this, by the way. Horton says, well, at least there's the through Jesus Christ clause, but is there anything like this in the New Testament? Are people already, quote, welcomed anyhow, apart from repentance and faith in Christ? Next statement. 
We are the church of infinite chances. Hmm. Horton critiques this by saying, first of all, isn't the gospel good news about what God has done in Christ to save sinners? Why does we become the subject of the seven word summary of the gospel? Second, this response suggests once again that grace is a new opportunity for a fresh start, not God's justification of the ungodly on account of Christ. Infinite chances for what? The idea implied, at least, is that God simply lets bygones be bygones and turns the page. Every day we blow it, but God is love. Mm -hmm. Next summary. Divinely persistent. God really loves us. Horton's critique, I can't imagine any non-Christians I know who would find this jarring, surprising, or anything qualifying as good news. It's probably what they assume already, which is why they don't take such things seriously. Not even Christ makes an appearance in this summary. Next summary, in Christ, God's yes defeats our no. Mm -hmm. I've heard that a lot of times, by the way. uh, Horton critiques it. He says, I could hear Karl Barth offer this response, yet without the gospel, this just sounds like fatalism. Why should I respond if apparently it doesn't matter either way? Next summary. Christ's humanity occasions our divinity. Okay, Horton writes, he says, reflecting an Eastern Orthodox emphasis on salvation as the deification of human beings by Christ's incarnation, this this answer again could be easily taken by the average person, at least one capable of understanding the sentence, to mean that the good news has nothing to do with what God has done for us in Christ, but what he has made possible for us to do in cooperation with him. Next summary. We live by grace. Well, that sounds close to the Bible, doesn't it? Horton says, well, true enough. The gospel of grace certainly gives us life and motivates our living. But what is the gospel? What's the good news? Next, we are who God says we are. Hmm, I've heard that a lot of times. Yeah, isn't that the whole summary of, I mean, that's kind of a succinct summary of uh, Joel Osteen's creed. Hold up your Bibles. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Anyway, uh, Horton critiques this. He says, the respondent fleshes this out a bit. Quote, in the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we see that God is so for us and with us that we can no longer be defined according to death, a religion-based worthiness system, or even the categories of late-stage capitalism. Again, this is so true, but the good news that God ignored our debt worthiness system and that in Christ God has paid it through the Savior's having fulfilled the law and borne its curse for us. Yeah, that seems to be missing. Next statement. Um, Wisdom became flesh, spirit roars, life transformed. Mm, The summary of life transformation. Okay. Horton says, I know that it's uh, I know that it's seven words, but again, nothing about the cross and resurrection there. Next statement. Israel's God bodied uh, love continues world making. (laughs) What does that sentence mean? Horton says, he says, after explaining that sentence to a stunned passenger on the elevator, I'd still be concerned that with a statement like this, I was placing the emphasis, as many of these do, on the saving work of God's people here and now, God's continuing world-making, while marginalizing his saving work on the cross, on the in Christ on the cross. Good point. Um, last of the um, 
well, actually, this, there's there's others, but this is kind of the last in this in this group of statements, summary statements of Christianity to dwell in possibility. See, there it is. See, what is Christianity? Christianity is to to dwell in possibility. Horton critiques it. He says, the, the response continues, when my daughter was confirmed in the Christian faith last spring, I gave her Emily Dickinson's poem, I Dwell in Possibility. The horrible fact about me and the world in which I live is that I'm tormented by possibilities I fall short of. What I need is good news that someone has actually achieved something for me, not made it possible for me to achieve. I, In Christ, I dwell in divine accomplishments, not possibilities. Horton then says, uh, there were other responses that certainly included elements of the gospel. Here's one example uh, of that. It says, the wall of hostility has come down. Apparently, that's the summary of Christianity. The the wall of hostility has come come down. Uh, Horton says, shaped by Paul's marvelous celebration of the mystery in Ephesians 3, this response certainly gets at something that the apostle considered part of the gospel itself. The wall separating Jew and Gentile tiles has been torn down with one new body, with Christ as its head, yet Paul saw this as possible only because of the salvation that we have in Christ by election, redemption, and calling of those dead in trespasses and sins. If you're confused about this, see Ephesians chapter uh, 1 and 2. Next one, uh, another one answered. Here's the summary of the uh, Christian faith. He led captivity captive. Hmm. Horton responds, he says, among gospel epitomes, I especially love the Jesus prayer, the Agnus Dei, when he ascended on high, he led captives, uh, captivity captive. The good news, as I first heard it from Paul and Christ's jubilee proclamation, it can hardly be denied that Christ's victory over the powers of death and hell are part of the gospel. But as Paul explains in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the victory over the powers was accomplished precisely because at the cross, God canceled the debt we owed to the law and its verdict against us. Okay, next summary. Once dead, now alive, Christ reshaping people. These sounds like mission statements or vision statements for uh, seeker-driven churches. Anyway, so uh, Horton responds. He says, again, part of the gospel in the broader sense. It's certainly part of the good news that we are raised from death to life in Christ. However, sanctification, Christ reshaping people, is not the biblical answer to the question. How can we as sinners be justified before a holy God? Great point. Next summary. Christ offers uh, offers new life for all. Like the previous answer, this offers regeneration without justification. Good point. Next summary, God enters history, uh, renewed covenants, promise, salvation. Hmm. Horton writes, he says, having written a lot of covenant theology, I like this one a lot. It might be a good conversation starter to get to the gospel, but I'm not sure I would adopt this as my seven-word summary. Next, uh, the statement is, uh, Christ was born we can be reborn. Hmm. The response adds, birth is a messy, painful affair fraught with uh, risk and danger, yet Jesus was born. Actually, I was surprised that messy didn't make it into more of these along with the adjectives like radical and wild. It's true enough that our Lord's incarnation and new birth are part of God's good news, but again, without the stuff in the middle, faithful life, a messy crucifixion for our sins and victorious resurrection for justification, what's the connection between his birth and our new birth? Great point. Next summary, God is love. This is no joke. (laughs) 
That's, we're not joking around here. God's love. That's the summary of the Christian faith. <clears throat> Horton responds. He says, well, the only reason that so many people in our society might think it's a joke or at least not take it very seriously is that they already think that God loves them. Apart from Christ, why should uh, why should they? Now that, now that might get the conversation going after the elevator arrives. And now the last three responses kind of in their own category, uh, he says that they don't even include the gospel as announced by scripture. Here's the first one. In Christ, God calls us to reconciliation. Now, that might sound like the gospel, but what does exactly it mean? Is the gospel, this, by the way, is the gospel according to a noted emergent church leader. Here we meet the familiar refrain of old liberalism and increasingly some forms of newer evangelicalism. The gospel is a call to do something, not good news about something that God has done for us and for the world already. Next one. Love your neighbor as yourself. That Apparently, that's the summary of the Christian faith. Although Jesus said this was a summary of the law, this response offers it as the summary of the gospel. So the respondent adds, This always seemed like hard moral advice that very few of us were ever able to follow. But in recent times, its, me- it's meaning seems clearer. Clearer? Easier? Really? That's <laughs> Horton's response. And then the last one. Everyone gets to grow and change. See, summary of Christianity. Oh, Christianity is, oh, yeah, that. everyone gets to grow and change. Horton responds. He says, imagine Jesus, not mentioned here, gathering a multitude to announce the good news of the kingdom. The crowd hushes, waiting for the words as Jesus, Jesus opens his lips to speak. Everyone gets to grow and change. Is there anything vaguely like that in the New Testament? What religious leader or motivational speaker could not fill this bill? This is the surprising news brought from a herald on behalf of the king who's reconciled enemies to himself and his son? As if this were not enough, the respondent adds, but not everyone will grow and change. Indeed, there <laughs> is there any good news from that person or for that person? So... There were two responses that express what seems clearly to lie at the heart of the gospel according to Scripture. I was encouraged but not surprised to see William Willimon break away from the pact to say God refuses to be God without us. It assumes, of course, that he could be if he wanted to. That is a direct shot at the human-centered message that pervades Christian speech today. Willimon added, We asked God to say something definite, and God, getting personal, sent Jesus Christ we were surprised. The one response that hit hit the nail on the head, in my view, was that of Yale missions professor Laman Sana, who quotes Paul's words in Second Corinthians five nineteen: "God was in Christ, reconciling the world." Now, by the way, this article goes on where Michael Hort now he's going to take he's you know, he's going to take a turn here and spend some time unpacking the concept and the false ideas behind the so-called gospel that God loves you anyway. That's not the biblical gospel, by the way. But I'm not going to read it here on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you want to read this, you need to go to the White Horse Inn blog and read the remainder of this blog post. It's actually very good, worth the read. And if you're wondering uh, uh, what Michael Horton would have said, he cheated. He didn't use seven words, he used nine. And he decided to you know, if we're going to summarize the Christian message, what is Christianity? Here's what he says, quoting Romans 4.25, crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. 
That's Christianity. And I think Michael Horton is spot on. The rest of all of that stuff is man-centered, human-centered psychobabble that has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with us being declared righteous by the shed blood of Christ on the cross in order to save us from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God when Jesus Christ comes in glory to judge both the living and the dead. I think that um, Dr. Horton hit a grand slam home run with this uh, blog post. And again, if you want to read the rest of it, you need to go to the White Horse Inn website to do so. All right, now what we're going to do is we're going to stop here for a second and go back and ask some questions. Okay, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is the offensive episode. And so the question is, of all the offensive things that you've heard, okay, which of the things that you have heard that were offensive brought the offense of the cross, brought the offense of Christ and him crucified for our sins, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins? And which offensive statements did you hear were offensive just because they were offensive but had nothing to do with the truth, sound doctrine? the cross, the gospel, and Christ. Which of these statements brought the offense of Christ? Which of them were just offensive because they were offensive? Something to consider as we go into our second break. And when we come back from our second break, what we're going to be doing is doing we're going to be listening to two good sermons, both of which are very Offensive, so you you gotta you're gonna need some protective gear for those sermons. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate christian. We'll be right back. Don't want to miss this. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap.
Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. I got two good and offensive sermons for you today. That's our theme for the program. This is the offensive episode of Fighting for the Faith. Hopefully, one or two of the segments today stepped on some of your toes. That's kind of the idea. Not for the sake of offense, but let's uh, do this. Okay, the good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's first sermon comes to us from Murdoch, Nebraska, Trinity Lutheran Church. Um, The pastor presiding is Brent Kuhlman. I think Brent Kuhlman, as he uh, ages in the pulpit, is becoming more and more like John the Baptist, and that is a good thing. The text that he's going to be preaching on is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. I will read it here in a minute. But the name of the sermon is, Jesus Goes to the Heart of the Problem. And let me just say this. If you think that you are made holy by what you drink or don't drink, by what you eat or don't eat, you are going to be offended by this sermon. If you think that you are more holy because you don't drink soda pop, if you think that you are more holy because you don't drink coffee, if you think that you are more holy because you refrain from drinking adult beverages, this sermon is going to smash your pietistic idols. And so the question is, as you're being offended here, are you being offended by the truth Is your false doctrine being confronted? And is Christ being placarded as the solution to your false religion? Or is it that Brent Kuhlman is just being a, well, a jerk? That's the question that you need to ask. Because remember, today's episode, the theme is being offended. So let me uh, kill the music, and uh, what I'm going to do here right now, I'm going to read the gospel text for this sermon. It is the gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, that reads, And he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters into his uh, not into his heart, but into his stomach, and then it is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within... Out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they are what defile a person. Here's Brent Kuhlman and his sermon entitled, Jesus Goes to the Heart of the Problem. 
Grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The text is the Holy Gospel. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, fried foods, white bread, oh, white sugar, creamy salad dressing, T-bone steaks, prime rib, double cheeseburgers, ham sandwiches, lobster, beer, wine, coffee, Coke, Marlboro's Cubans. I ask you, is it a sin then to eat red meat? How about ham or crawfish? Is it a sin to drink a Budweiser or a Blue Moon? Is it sinful for you to enjoy two or three cups of coffee in the morning and maybe a few more during the day? Is it a sin to smoke a big Churchill? Or let me ask the question this way. Does a medium-rare ribeye steak or a ham sandwich or a cigarette defile you or pollute you so that you cannot stand before God? Lots of religious people would say, oh yes, yes, absolutely. Or let me put it to you another way. Does abstaining from all these foods, drinks, or leafy products make you clean? Do that, does by abstaining from them improve your standing before the Almighty? Does it get you closer to the kingdom, or does it bring the kingdom closer to you? Many people categorically declare, oh yes, it does. And in Jesus' day, there were the Pharisees and teachers of the law who taught such things. Today, today, there is still the kingdom of God, food and drink regulation people, the food and drink police. However, the modern day God of the food and drink police is an idol, a make-believe God, a self-invented deity. Its name, well, my goodness, its name, well, it's just like Voldemort a he-who-must-not-be-named kind of an idol. But I will give it a name today. I will call this idol the Elite Community of Central Planners, or ECCP for short. And this idol, brothers and sisters, is a beast. This tyrannical, fascist-like beastie parades around with all sorts of power and pomp, bearing its fangs, extending its claws, showing off its horns. The beast promises utopia, Shangri-La, a new age, a paradise, or to use the language that we are familiar with, the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And so this beast tolerates no false worship. This beast demands total submission, complete obedience, and non-compliance rains down the beast's swift and merciless wrath. Now check out the list. See what's been banned. Stay away from the blacklisted products and you're working on your purity as a faithful worshiper of the beast. As pure as you can be, getting purer and purer, working hard at it, being obedient and faithful to the beast, clean, pure, unpolluted. And so be careful what you eat or drink. The ECCP, the beast, is a most jealous deity. It is an idol of the highest order in our country, and its male and female mouthpieces have spoken, and they will continue to speak infallibly. Have you heard them? Egg McMuffins are not to be eaten by gymnasts because that sets the religion back and gives people the wrong impression that the beast tolerates false worshippers, if I may paraphrase one of the mouthpieces. 
Happy Meals, did you know this? Happy Meals have been outlawed in San Francisco. His eminence, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, has banned sugary drinks from New York City restaurants, theaters, stadiums, and streetcars, especially the supersized drinks. If you know you're German, you'll understand what I'm about ready to say. If you don't know German, ask. All these things are now verboten. No exceptions. And theater popcorn is next on the list, according to a member of the New York City's Board of Health. Some juices, coffee drinks, and milkshakes are not far behind because of, quote, the monstrosity of calories that are contained in them. And so, put the banned products in your mouth, and, well, you're impure, you're defiled, you're polluted, you are a false worshiper, a pagan. And fines will be administered, and jail time is a definite possibility. Why? Because utopia cannot be established as long as there are rebels or unrepentant eaters and drinkers of the contraband. So you people had better make darn sure that you keep the beast's regulations. You better look carefully and relentlessly obey the first commandment of the beast's fine print. What you can put into your mouth, or what you cannot put into your mouth. Because utopia, paradise, Shangri-La, the kingdom of heaven on the earth, depends upon your 24-7, 365 total compliance, worship of the beast. And then another preacher shows up. Lo and behold, he is the one true God in the flesh. Jesus. He is not the beast. But he is, as Revelation 5 describes him, as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. This lamb, Jesus, will have none of this. He says, listen to me and not the beast. And that's what we're precisely supposed to do. You remember the Father's voice at the Mount of Transfiguration. That's my boy. I love him. Listen to him. And preacher Jesus God declares in the text, he says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this, that the ECCP is a deceptive little beastie. It is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Its religion is a total sham. Why? Because nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Instead, Jesus says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. Do you get it? Do you understand? Well, the disciples didn't. They didn't have a clue, and maybe you don't either. And so the one true God in the flesh, Jesus, spells it out again. He says, are you so dull? Haven't you heard anything I've been saying or paying attention to anything that I've been doing? Don't you see, Jesus is saying to all of us, don't you see that all of the beasties, food and drink rules have nothing to do with establishing a utopian paradise on the earth. Food and drink go into the mouth and into the stomach, and then the body gets rid of it. As far as I'm concerned, Jesus says, that is not what defiles you or pollutes you before me. Really, Jesus? Really? Theater popcorn? A Wendy's double baconator? And a Starbucks caramel macchiato won't endanger my relationship with you? Jesus, are you serious? Are you telling me that 
I can buy my child a happy meal at McDonald's and I will not experience the wrath of God? Of course not. Good grief. For in the text, Jesus says, none of that food or drink makes you unclean with me. Well, then what in the world does? What is it, Jesus, that makes a person unclean before God? What is it that defiles a person so that it separates him or her from God? What is it? Did you catch it in the text? It is one of the most amazing answers given in Scripture. What defiles and pollutes you before God is what? Your heart. That's the problem. It's a heart problem, a deep, deep heart problem. Listen again to what Jesus says. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Brothers and sisters, all this sin that comes from the heart, yours and mine, that is what separates us all from God. Jesus throws out all the food and drink regulations for having a salvation, that is. Now you can choose, you can choose not to eat certain foods. You can choose to not light up. You can choose not to imbibe certain liquids for dietary or other health issues. Perhaps your doctor has advised you accordingly. And rightly so, the governing authorities have outlawed and regulate certain products that people do put into their mouths to smoke or put into their noses to sniff or that they put into their veins to inject. Or it may be that uh, you may be a recovering addict so that you need to stay away from certain beverages or substances. Now, Jesus doesn't have a problem with that, so don't misunderstand this. What troubles preacher Jesus is this, that people would trust in false gods, worshiping the beastie that I have named the elite community of central planners with her promise of utopia by religiously keeping all its food and drink commandments. That is idolatry even though this religion is extremely pious and nationalistic. Brothers and sisters, I will say it again because the text says it. The sinful heart is what defiles you before God. Our rotten heart is what pollutes us and separates us from God. All these evils, Jesus says, come from inside, and that's what makes you unclean. The evils of sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, etc., and that all flows from the heart, yours and mine. This is the eternal life or death problem. And so keeping certain foods or drinks out of our mouth won't save you. But a preacher does, and his name is Jesus. He's the Savior, the Savior of all of us idolatrous sinners whose hearts are very unclean and impure. Sinners who put their trust in little beasties instead of Jesus. And so he goes and does a Good Friday for you and me, the ungodly. He takes all of our sin that flows from our unclean, sin-clogged hearts, and he answers for it, and he dies for all of it, and he gets damned with it. And so now he forgives it. He doesn't hold any of your sin against you because now it all belongs to him. 
He is the, the slain Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And with his bloody forgiveness put into your ears and your hearts, you are restored to God because you are purified and cleansed in that word. Listen to what scripture says in Hebrews 10. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Yes, in holy baptism, you have been clothed with Christ's righteousness and you've been cleansed, you've been washed, and you have been buried into his Calvary death. And today, Christ's promise of forgiveness, life, and salvation are yours as you put into your mouth unleavened bread and drink the wine with your mouth and believe in your heart that it is what, it's, what he says it is, his body and blood, creating in you a clean and pure heart in the Psalm 51 way, as we sang in the intro. And that clean heart is faith. Faith in Jesus. So Jesus again says in the text, Listen to me and understand this, everyone. Salvation is found only in me and not in food and drink regulations. Paradise does come, Jesus tells us, in, with, and under him. As he speaks his word to us and gives us his body and blood with his word of forgiveness that cleanses us from all our sins. All the evil that flows from our heart is forgiven. And you and I are now clean because of the word of forgiveness that Jesus speaks to all of us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Our next sermon, a good sermon, by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. I think it's pronounced Ociendo Vivificat, which basically means being made alive through death, being killed and then made alive. That's kind of the concept behind it. And this is a sermon um, that was just preached, and it was on the occasion of the baptism of his son, Pastor Jeremy Rohde's son. And um, let me say that um, if you believe falsely that baptism is something that you do to publicly claim to the world that you're on Team Jesus, then this sermon is going to offend you. And the reason it's going to offend you is because he's going to preach what the Bible says regarding baptism. And... It'll offend you. But if you will get over your false doctrine regarding baptism and you listen to what he says as he preaches it from the biblical text, specifically Romans chapter 6, then you're going to hear the most wonderful gospel. Like I said, this is an offensive sermon. But the question is, out of all the different offensive things that you've heard today, who's brought the offense of Christ, the offense of sound doctrine, the offense of preaching against your idols and your wickedness and the offense of a crucified and risen Savior as the only hope that you have. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God has just killed my son. But I'm not the first father to think this. The Lord once said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. God has just killed my son. So too thought Jacob 
when he held in his shaking hands the bloody coat of his beloved Joseph. God has just killed my son. So how does it feel today, Pastor, to have your son baptized? How can I begin to answer that question? You parents who have brought your children to baptism already know that baptism is not all smiles and pictures and unearned congratulations. Baptism is much more serious than that. In fact, if I believe what the good book says, then I must also believe that the good God has just killed my boy. But before you scoff or shake your head, ask me why. Why, pastor, do you think that God has just killed your son? Because God himself teaches us that this is what baptism is. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Baptism is burial. Baptism is death. That's not my word. That's the word of our Lord. All we see with our eyes is a little harmless water. But with our ears, we hear the voice of God telling us that in this water, we are buried through baptism into death. Before it is anything else then, this font is a place of death. And I bring my son to the waters of holy baptism so that he might be drowned and die. What kind of God would teach us that we must be put to death through baptism? A God who is very different from the preachers and pastors who are popular today. They preach a God who wants to make you happier and healthier. The one true God, he wants you to be drowned and die. They preach a God who says, do your best and I'll take care of the rest. The one true God says, to me your best is like used menstrual rags. They preach that the human heart is essentially good and just needs seven steps of something in order to become greatly improved. But the one true God says, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Would you call Jesus a liar, or has he described your heart exactly as it is? There are only these two theologies, then, in the entire world. One tells you that your heart is good, that all you need to please God is a little self-improvement. 
The other tells you the truth. That your heart is desperately wicked. That all you need to please God is to be drowned and die. I know my own heart and what disease I've inherited from Adam and what disease I've now passed on to my son. And so today, he receives the sign of the cross both upon his forehead and upon his heart, the sign of God's death sentence. Because the one true God makes no compromises with sin. On the contrary, he summons sinners, one and all, to be drowned in holy baptism, to be buried through baptism into death. So you see, the font isn't so different from Moriah after all. Like Abraham, I take my unknowing little lamb to the sacrifice. This font is not so different from Jacob's pit. Here I take my little brother and throw him in. But it is here too, at this font, that my Isaac finds the lamb who will take his place. Not a lamb caught in a thicket, but a man caught in a crown of thorns. It is here, at this font, that my little Joseph hears the voice of the Lamb who is slaughtered in his place. And my son's coat of many-colored sins is now dipped in the blood of Jesus. And therefore, with Abraham and Jacob, today yet one more father rejoices. For today God has saved my son. And this is true because at this font, we are not just buried through baptism into death, we are buried with Christ. In these waters, God does what only God can do. He unites us with Christ in a death like His. He unites us with Christ in such a way that Christ's death is now our death. His crucifixion, our crucifixion. His suffering, our suffering. You have been hammered to the cross with Him. Your sinful flesh has already been nailed to the cursed tree. Your evil heart has been thrust through with a Roman spear, and all God's wrath is spent already. Because in baptism, your Savior shares His death with you. As Paul says, For if you have been united with Him in a death like His, you shall certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And this too is the reason why God summons us to holy baptism. This too is the reason why I bring my son to these waters today. Not only that he might die, but also that God might raise him up with Christ Jesus. For this font is not only a place of death, it is also a place of resurrection, a place of new birth, 
place of eternal life. Realize who you are then, baptized Christian. You are one who has been raised from the dead that you might walk in newness of life. You have already died to sin. You stand this very day alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you are immortal. And though hell's army surrounds you, you shall not be afraid. You are sons of light, clothed in the blood-soaked armor of heaven's Lamb. Stand, therefore, in the helm of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. Have your feet shod with the gospel, the shield of faith in one hand and the sword of the Spirit, God's word, in the other. For you are heaven's army here on earth. You war not against flesh and blood, but against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. This, baptized Christian, is who you are. Remember then, the Lord your God, who creates in you a clean heart and renews in you a right spirit. Remember the Lord your God, who dips the branch of hyssop into the blood of his beloved lamb and sprinkles you clean. Remember the Lord your God who pours out the blood of his only son to wash you thoroughly from your iniquity and cleanse you from all your sin. Look upon the baptismal font this day and remember that your end is also your beginning. Here you are put to death with Christ, for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God who kills in order to make alive. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So were you offended? Maybe you were, and that's probably a good thing. Some of the things you may have heard today were offensive, not because they brought Christ, not because they were in accord with sound doctrine, the cross, the biblical gospel, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Some of the things I brought today were offensive precisely because that isn't what was brought. But notice how Sound doctrine, law and gospel, sin and grace, does offend. It steps on your toes. It makes you sweat. Because it points the bony finger of the law at you and says guilty. But at the same time, it points to the cross and says forgiven. Repent of your idolatry and be forgiven. And you do not have a right. You do not have a right to not be offended. Preaching the truth is offensive it is offensive, and that's one of the hazards of doing business. So keep in mind, we as Christians are called to bring the offense of Christ, to bring the offense of God to a world that is in rebellion against him. Preach that offense because it's the gospel that is the power of God 
and to salvation. And without it, there is no power. You end up with basically man-centered, gobbledygook and therapeutic religion that is powerless to save and will ultimately result in people being sent to hell on the last day. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.